Well, good morning, church family. I also want to um, take this time as well. Uh, we're going to be going over several different passages of Scripture today. And uh, if you did not bring a Bible with you and you would like to follow along, we do have some Bibles in the bookshelf in the back. And now will be a great time to grab one if you would like to follow along with us today. But uh, I'm gonna, let's go to the Lord in prayer before we get into his word. Our God and our Father, we thank you that you are not a God of confusion. You have not left us here wondering how we're supposed to live in a way that pleases you. But yet, you have been so faithful to us by giving us your word to walk in a godly way. So Lord, I pray that you use your word this morning to convict the hearts of your people. May we not be a people who hear the truth and disregard it, but people who hear the truth and embrace it. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so this morning we are in our second week of our series called Living as Sacrifices. We just completed our Passover Passion series leading right up to Easter Sunday where we learned about the good news of the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins and the promise of eternal life. And now as we jump into this series, what we want to do is we want to expand on how our lives ought to look after coming to faith in Christ. Last week, Pastor Oren led us through some of Romans 9 and the start of Romans chapter 10. And Pastor Oren brought to our attention the importance, of, the importance and the need to spread the gospel to lost people in our lives and specifically to be praying for them. The Apostle Paul said it in Romans chapter 9 and verse 3, For I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. He continued in chapter 10 and verse 1 saying, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. So whenever the Apostle Paul said that I could wish myself a curse for the sake of my brothers, the Greek word that he used there is the term anathema, which means devote to eternal to devote himself to eternal destruction and hell. Paul cared so much about the lost people in his life that he wished that he could take their place. And though that would have been an impossible exchange to trade places with the lost people, his heart was so heavy that he'd be willing to do so. So the Lord loved us enough that he sent us his son to die for our sin. The Apostle Paul loved the lost Israelites so much that he could wish himself a curse to take their place. And what Pastor Oren posed to us last week is, do we care enough about the lost people in our lives enough to even strike up a conversation? This morning, we're going to be going right off of that point in our time together. We're going to be in several different passages this morning, but also coming back to Romans 10 as the foundation, as the foundation for our series. So as we, as we open up, uh, it, was my senior, it was my senior year of high school, uh, so this was my last season um, for the football team that I was on, and it was our last shot as a team together, and we started off the season very well, but 
going on the rest of the season, everything went downhill. Uh, three quarters of the way into the season, uh, some people started checking out of the season. You know, we had some of, the, uh, some of the seniors just talking about, oh, well, the winter season, or they were talking about the spring season to come. We had some of the younger guys talking about the next season. A lot of people just started checking out. And one of our coaches stepped up and gave us a lesson that I will never forget. We're in the middle of a workout, and this coach that, and our coach noticed that some people were being lackadaisical in the workout. They were talking, laughing, half doing their sets, complaining, messing around. He turned the music off, and he told everybody to listen up. And he said something, I'm going to paraphrase because this was six years ago, but I remember the majority of it. He said something along the lines of this. He said, as I look around, I see a lack of Why? Why do you do what you do for this team? Why did you train in the winter and in the spring seasons on top of the sports you were already doing? Why did you do all the running you did in the heat of June and July? Why did you go through two days all the way through August? Did you do all of that just to get embarrassed on Friday night? I don't think so. Each and every one of you had a why behind the work that you put in for the season, and I don't see that now. So whatever your why was, whether that was getting your name in the paper, getting a college scholarship, or even impressing a girl, find that why and play for that for the rest of the season. Because without a why, you might as well not even show up. Now, that speech motivated me so much that the next game I got a really bad concussion that put me out for the rest of the season in those final games. And despite having some memory loss of the ambulance ride and the hospital experience, that speech is definitely one I will never forget. And that speech right there played a huge role into establishing my faith because he was right. Without having a why, I might start something well but after a while, it can become so routine that the thing that once was important to me can become either a burden or a routine. And I think that a lot of us appreciate whenever we are a part of something that has a solid why behind what they can do. It's really easy to get behind a leader or an organization or something going on that has a why that you know what's going on. Have you ever asked somebody why something is done the way it's done, and then somebody just says, oh, well, that's just how we've always done it? I don't know about you, but I always get frustrated at that re response because I want to know why we do what we do. So with all of that, the topic that I've been assigned to address today is gathering slash assembling as a congregation of believers, or as how we would say in our normal, regular conversation, going to church. Why is it that we gather together on a weekly basis? Do we gather together to keep the fourth commandment out of the well-known Ten Commandments, which is to remember the Sabbath day and keep it as holy? Well, no, because the Sabbath day was on the seventh day of the week, not the first day of the week, and that's the only command out of the Ten Commandments that was nullified to the New Testament church? Do we gather together as a form of making it up to God after a week of living however we want? Do we do it to pay our dues to God? 
Well, not that either. Because Amos chapter 5, verse 21 through 24, the Lord says that he detests that type of behavior. Do we gather together so that we can see what we get out of it and then leave if we're not getting what we want out of it? Well, I think we're going to see within the next couple of minutes that that's not the case either. So if it's not any of these reasons, why do we gather together on a weekly basis? A recent survey concluded that the top reasons that the people in the United States attend religious services were, number one, to become closer to God, number two, for their children to have a solid foundation, number three, to become a better person, and number four, for comfort in times of trouble. So those are all good reasons, and there's nothing wrong with any of those things. And interestingly enough, in that same survey, they concluded that one of the top reasons that people do not go to, do not go to religious services is not because they don't believe in God, but because they prefer to keep their worship between them and God. I don't feel the need to worship in congregation because I, my relationship with God is personal. So what I would like to do today, however is to establish a clear understanding of why we do our weekly gatherings. Why do we assemble together every Sunday morning? As I mentioned earlier, we're going to be going through several different passages of Scripture, and I do encourage you to turn with me um, to understand the why behind assembling together. So the first thing that I want to address to us this morning is this first question, what is is the church. And actually the first thing, oops, and actually the first thing that I want to do is just totally eliminate that question and replace it with who is the church? In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus asked his disciples what other people were saying about him. He said, "Who do people say that I am?" His disciples responded that most people were saying that he was a prophet. And then he said, well, who do you say I am? In Matthew chapter 16, verses 16 through 18, it says, Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So Jesus, as the founder of the church, laid out some clear, a clear definition of what the church is going to be, and to correct that, not what the church is going to be, but who the church is going to be. So Jesus said, on this rock, I will build my church. So to take a couple minutes to break that down, he says, on this rock, I will build my church. What is that rock? The rock, the foundation behind the church of Jesus Christ is Christ himself. It's the, pro it's the proclamation that Jesus is who he says he is. The belief that Jesus is the son of God. He says, on this rock, I will build. 
So Jesus, he says, he will build. He is the founder. He is the builder. He is the foundation. He is the owner. He is the head of the church. He is the one in charge. On this rock, I will build my church. So whose church is this? Is this Pastor Oren's church? Well, no. This is the church of Jesus Christ. It has been entrusted to Pastor Oren, and he's doing a great job leading it, but this is not Pastor Oren's church. This is the church of Jesus Christ. And everything that Pastor Oren leads us in, he follows the direction of that real head of the church, Jesus Christ. Notice how he walked out for that point. I don't... <laughs> he knew that was coming too. So the Greek word for church that um, in Matthew's gospel, it means called out ones. The word for church there is called out ones. Believe it or not, it is not a big building or a small building or any building of any sort, but rather it's the people that assemble no matter where it is. The church consists of those who by faith have called on the Lord Jesus for for the forgiveness of their sins and choose to follow him for the rest of their lives. Lastly, he says, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. In Acts chapter 2, the church was established on the day of Pentecost when the apostles received the Holy Spirit and began going and making disciples. Early on, the church faced severe persecution, but the church only spread like a wildfire. No matter what comes in the church's way, nothing will be able to stand against it. So as much as we do say, probably on a weekly basis, that we are going to church, we are actually going to the building where the church, you and me, where we gather. So then that poses another question, are we supposed to gather? As a congregation, as believers of Christ, are we supposed to gather? Because on one hand, some people think that church should be at their convenience. You just go whenever you feel like it. If something else comes up, you prioritize that. Some people have completely switched to doing services online in the background of whatever they're already doing in their home. And while that was a good solution for taking proper health precautions, I don't think that that was intended to be a permanent solution for the gathering of believers. So that's on one hand. And then on the other hand, there is a church in Ohio, not far from where I'm from, had a pastor say, if you love the Lord, you will be here Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night. I'll repeat that again. If you love the Lord, you will be here Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night. Good luck if one of your kids are sick. So those are two extremes. And oftentimes with churches, with the gathering of believers, we hear a lot of preferences or we hear a lot of tradition, but we want to always fall back on the foundation of Scripture. What does Scripture have to say about assembling? Should we assemble? Are we commanded to assemble? Or is it just a suggestion? 
If you would, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10, verses 23 23 through 25. And uh, this is a passage that lays out this point, um, I think, the most clear in Scripture. Hebrews chapter 10, the, the letter of Hebrews was written to a scattered and persecuted church. And this is what the writer wrote to them. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23 through 25 says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and to good works, not neglecting meeting together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. So we'll take a minute to break this passage down as well. It says, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope. To hold fast means to persevere. To persevere means to be immovable. Whatever comes, we do not move. We hold fast. Hold fast to what? To the confession of our hope. What is the confession of our hope? It's what I brought up earlier. It's the proclamation of the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's the truth that we bank our souls on, that Jesus is who he says he is. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. The Greek term for without wavering translates to endure torture. Right? That, that doesn't mean that we, you know, we come here to get tortured or anything. What that's saying is we hold fast, we are immovable to the point, and we are so solid on our foundation of the proclamation of Jesus Christ. We stand so firm on that that we will even endure torture for it. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. Why? How can we do that? Because he who promised is faithful. Temptations are going to be inevitable. Persecution may come. There will be tares among the wheat. But however, the reason why we can hold fast is because he who promised is faithful. And he who promised is faithful to what? that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. He never said that the gates of hell wouldn't put some roadblocks, but he did say that the gates of hell will not prevail. Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. There has been and there will continue to be efforts to stop the church, Persecution against the church, no matter how bad the persecution ever was in history, no attempt ever has been or ever will be successful in stopping the church of Jesus Christ. Jesus is not up in heaven crossing his fingers and hoping that the gates of hell will not prevail. He's saying that it's good as done, being the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth. And that's why Romans 8 says, if our God is for us, who can stand against us? Okay, that sounds really good from a a football coach giving a pep talk to his team. Like, oh, God's on our side. Let's go get the other team. 
But it goes so much deeper than that because the gates of hell will not stand against us. So even though threats to the church might seem big, from an eternal perspective, if our God is for us, who can stand against us? The answer is no one. So let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, because he who promised is faithful. And then it says, stir one another up to love and to good works. So the, the, pers- the persecuted church that this was written to, where they were all uh, scattered, they were very discouraged because of the persecution that came for them just believing that Jesus is who he says he is. And they were ready to go back to their old ways of Judaism. But they needed to continue to endure together. And there's something about enduring together that even though the problem is still there, you, you can face it with some encouragement. My, uh, a couple years back, my friend and I trained for a five-year together. Uh, five-year. We trained for a 5K together. And once the day of the race came up, we had, pre- we had prepped. We did everything we could. And while we started the race, our adrenaline was so high that we were running faster than we had ever run Uh, In our training for it, we thought we might be starting out too quick, but we just kept going. And about toward the end of the race, my side was cramping really bad. My shins were on fire, but I I looked to my left, and my friend Noah, he's just, he's still going. And I was like, well, if he's not stopping, I'm certainly not stopping. So we kept going, we, we, uh, we finished the race, we finished that last little bit in a sprint, and I beat him by three or four steps, but you know, I figured if uh, John said that he beat Peter to the tomb, I can say, um, and this will be on Spotify, that I beat Noah Hazelrig by three or four steps in a 5K. Um, sorry, Noah. But all that to say, after we finished the race... I looked at him, and I, I, was, I was in pain. Like I said, my side was cramping. My shins were on fire. The people from the news were interviewing us, and we're like, what? I don't know why we were getting interviewed for it. We got third and fourth place. It wasn't even a big deal. But then I looked at him, and I said, dude, the only reason I finished that race was because you didn't stop. And he just went, dude, the only reason I didn't stop was because you weren't stopping. <laughs> like, dude, the, we had nothing in this. We could have walked. You know, we could have taken a breather. We could have stopped at any one of the water stands on the way. We were doing this for fun. But I was like, thanks for dragging me through that. And he looks at me, he's like, thanks for dragging me through that. But there's something about enduring together, even in our faith. The scripture says that iron sharpens iron, and one man sharpens another. The passage goes on to say, not neglecting to meet together because Christ is coming back as the day draws near. We are commanded to meet as a form of encouragement in our walk with Christ. So yes, to to encourage one another, but also to remind us of the urgency that Christ is coming back. And we don't know when, all we know is that he's coming. Ephesians chapter 5 says, Don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit 
and make most use of your time because the days are evil. And Hebrews goes on to say, even just building off that point, because the day are, days are evil and because the day is drawing near. As the world gets more and more and more enticed by sin, we are to be encouraged by one another and built up, but we are also to be reminded of the urgency of Christ coming back. So we have a clear command in Scripture to gather. We have that down already. We have established that the church is not a what, but the church is a who. But then that raises the question, what do we gather around? Some people gather around a certain speaker or a certain style of music or certain things that they like about a church building. And some people even gather around a certain translation of the Bible. But what does Scripture say that we are to gather around? Once again, I will direct us back to the founder of, our, the, founder of the church, our Lord Jesus Christ. Remember back in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, Jesus said that he would build his church on the foundation that he is who he says he is. So with that, we as the church of Jesus Christ, we gather around the gospel. The gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ is the central message and the central reason why we gather. If you would uh, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, um, it, because we have one of the most clearest layouts of what the gospel is. So if this is what we're gathering around, we want to have a good understanding of what the gospel is. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I'm going to read the first four verses, and then I'm going to skip to chapter, I mean, I'm going to skip to verse 14 through 19. So let's start in verse 1. The Apostle Paul writes, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached, you, I preached to you, unless you have believed in vain. So Paul pretty much says, I'm about to lay out the gospel, so if you missed it the first time, I'm about to lay it out. So listen up this time. For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. He goes on to talk about the people that he appeared to, and then picking up in verse 14, it says, And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even to be found misrepresenting God, because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If, Christ, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of most people to be pitied.
pitied. So what the Apostle Paul lays out for us, he lays out, like I said, the, one of the most clear layouts of the gospel of Jesus Christ in Scripture. The proclamation of his life, death, and resurrection for the forgiveness of our sins. So that's the clear example that, that we're given. And then he also says that if that's not true, then our faith is in vain. Our faith is pointless. There's no reason to do anything that we do. People could even pity us for having such a false hope. But our faith hinges on Christ being who he says he is and his life, death, and resurrection for the forgiveness of our sins. Therefore, if this is the thing, if this is the thing that is of utmost importance to the point where if this isn't true, our whole faith crumbles, then this ought to be the central message that we continue to gather around. If you also would turn to Romans chapter 10, we're going to be looking at verses 19, I mean, verses 9 through 13. In Romans chapter 10, we're going to be picking up right where we, uh, Pastor Oren left us off with last week. Romans chapter 10, starting in verse 9. The Apostle, Paul, the Apostle Paul wrote, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Why do we gather and what do we gather around? We gather because our Lord calls us to and we gather around the gospel. That, above all else, is why we gather. So, keep your finger in Romans chapter 10 because we're going to be going back there um, to close out uh, the sermon for today. But, so now we know that we're supposed to meet together with the gospel at the center. But then that poses the question, what should our gathering consist of? And different people in different cultures have different things that are included in their gathering of believers. In the Church of America, we are, typically speaking, pretty organized. We start at a certain time, we have a flow of the service, and then we end at a certain time. Unless I'm preaching, then you never know when you're going to get out. I have uh, planned out for you guys to get out at three today, so I just wanted to. But however, whenever I went to Haiti a couple years ago, it was a completely different story. Because there was really not much structure at all. And it wasn't the type of like chaos that um, the scripture uh, condemns doing and prohibits in a church gathering. It's just not something I was used to. So there was no certain start time. They started their service when everybody showed up. How they knew when everybody showed up and it was time to start, I don't know. It was a pretty small village, so I think that's probably why. But we got there, 
And there was already people there, looked like they have been there for quite a bit, you know, because they're like, their stuff is laid out, so it didn't look like they just got there. And the pastor was doing a warm-up sermon before his actual sermon. And these people are all sitting and listening, and then other people start gathering in. And then, there, I, don't, I don't know when it was, I don't know when the last person walked through the door, but then the, like, the pastor all of a sudden is like, all right, we're going to get started now. It's like, do you just wait for everyone to wake up there, you know? And, like, what if, like, that guy over there didn't hear the rooster this morning? Are we just going to wait till 5 o'clock for him or what? But, yeah, like, there wasn't a certain start time. And um, whenever, whenever they started it, they, like I said, there was a warm-up sermon. And then they sang the extended version of every single song that they had. Each song was about 8 to 10 minutes. There was four or five of them, probably, if I remember right. Maybe I'm just being dramatic. And then also, I had no idea when this thing was going to end, or even if it was going to end. And here's the thing, who's right in that situation, the Church of America or the Church in Haiti? Both. Neither of those things are wrong, because we're not given the frequency or the length of time that they should be as a clear command in Scripture, And there was one time where in Acts chapter 20, Paul drug out a sermon so long that it went until midnight, and there was a young man sitting in the window. He fell asleep, fell out of the third-story window, hit the ground, died. Paul casually walks downstairs, raises him from the dead, goes all the way back up, and then talks until the morning. How about that for a church service? What happened at church today? Was there a good message? Yeah, it was was great, and uh, some kid fell out the window, but he's good. So, what, so we're not given frequency. We're not, we're not really given the amount of time we're supposed to meet. But we, what we are given, however, we are given what our gatherings should consist of. And first and foremost, why do we meet on Sunday? Like I mentioned earlier, it's certainly not to honor the Sabbath and keep it as holy Because if that's our reason, we're not doing a very good job with that. We're a day late every single time because the Sabbath is on Saturday. We meet on the first day of the week because we have a couple glimpses in Scripture of the church gathering on Sunday. For example, Acts chapter 20 and verse 7 and 1 Corinthians 16.2 are a couple of the different references that show us that the early church um, got together on the Lord's day. And the reason why they weren't doing it on Saturday the Sabbath anymore was because the Lord rose on the first day of the week. So they didn't call it Sunday. They called the first day of the week the Lord's day. And early church father writings that we have, they attest to the fact that the church continued to do this until Uh, even after the New Testament period. So that's why we meet on Sundays. And there's a little more than that's just how we've always done it because we do it because the Lord rose on the first day. But just as a side note, this does not mean that we are only to worship once a week because true worship is each and every individual area of our lives surrendered over to the Lord. We're given instruction with how to please the Lord in our jobs as we work to provide for our families throughout the week in Ephesians 6 and 2 Thessalonians 3. But turn with me, if you will, to talk about what should our gatherings consist of to Acts chapter 2. Uh, Like I said, Acts chapter 2 is where the church was founded. And we're going to be looking at verses 42 through 47 to establish what should our gatherings consist of. So... 
Acts chapter 2 and verses 42 through 47, it says, And they, talking about the church, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the, prayer, and, and the prayers, and all came upon every soul, and many, sun, many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling all their possessions and belongings and distributing, all the proce- distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved." So we'll uh, skip a stone across this passage because it says that the early church devoted themselves to, number one, the apostles' teaching. The foundational teaching of the church always has been and will continue to be in the true church, God's truth as revealed by the scripture, which the apostles received and faithfully taught without wavering. Peter wrote in his second letter that whenever they were writing scripture, they didn't follow any sort of cleverly devised myth. But each man who wrote the scripture was carried along by the Holy Spirit. And we as believers, we don't have a problem with that because if our God didn't have a problem with speaking everything into existence, might I propose that he didn't have a problem with publishing his own book? It says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship. Fellowship is meeting together with a purpose. It's building one another up. It's encouraging one another. Fellowship is much more than an ice cream social because it goes beyond this life because we are heirs of eternal life together. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread. You'll see this twice in this passage, and it means two different things. The first, the breaking of bread, they observed the mandate, not the suggestion of communion. They devoted themselves to prayers. It's not just that they prayed, it's that they devoted themselves to prayer. And how did they pray? They kept in, these were the very people who asked the Lord, Lord, teach us how to pray. It was with that mindset of, Lord, not Our will be done, but your will be done. They devoted themselves to prayer, to wonders and to signs. Wonders and signs were being done. Wonders refers to the amazement that people experienced when they saw these miracles performed. Signs refers to the Lord authenticating his apostles and some of their close companions' message at the start of the church by displaying power through them at the start of the New Testament. It says that they had all things in common and were selling their possessions. They held God's gifts with open hands, as we would say in one of our value statements here at Neighborhood Church. So while they did sell everything they have and give everything that they did have, do also consider that the church at Jerusalem spent the rest of the New Testament dead broke and reliant on the other churches to give to them to support their ministry so that they could keep doing what they were doing. So while God may call some of us to give our all, to give everything away. Some, he doesn't call to give everything away, but rather to steward and to give to those who did give everything away. Either way, whether you're called to give everything away or not, we are called to steward well everything that the Lord has given us, never seeking selfish gain 
and being ready at any moment to give it all away to do whatever he has called us to do. It says that they were together day by day in the temple, so they did an amazing job with that command that we were given in Hebrews of not neglecting meeting together. They were growing rapidly. The only issue was that they stayed in Jerusalem whenever the Lord told them to go into all the world and make disciples. So the Lord used Saul of Tarsus to persecute and scatter the church, and that's how it grew. And that's how you and I have the gospel today. And as I mentioned earlier, we're given instruction on glorifying God in our work to provide for our family. So I'm sure the Lord wouldn't mind if we did meet together each and every day to worship him. I'm sure he wouldn't turn that down. But there were some people in the church of Thessalonica who did do that. And they kept meeting together and they said, we don't even need to work because the Lord is coming back. And Paul said, absolutely not. If you Guess what? If you don't work, you don't eat. We are given guidelines in scripture so that as much as beneficial as it would be for us to gather together every single day that's not always something practical however we do have the tradition from the early church that we gather together on the lord's day as a day set aside to him said that they were breaking bread in their homes they were sharing daily needs together and they had glad and generous hearts where we learn later that a glad and generous heart in 1 Thessalonians 5 is a part of the will of God for our lives. And then it comes all back to this, the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Why? Because the Lord said that he would build his church. And they did it the Lord's way. Other instructions for church gathering that were given throughout the rest of the New Testament include singing in Ephesians 5, giving financially in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, the reading of scripture in Colossians chapter 4, the using of our spiritual gifts and organizing our services in an orderly way in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, and of course, the preaching of the word of God in 1 Timothy 4 and 2 Timothy 4. But why all of this? Why do we do all of this? Do we do any of this to impress other people? Do we preach so that others will think we're good speakers? Do we sing so that others will think we're great singers? Do we serve so that others will think that we're humble? So now that we know that we must gather, that our gathering is centered on Jesus, and what our gathering should consist of, the last thing I want to go over today is why is it important that we meet together? Why is it important for us to not neglect meeting together? Now, I could pull the card that says, because the Lord said so, and the Lord has every right to say, because I said so, and it is a good reason. However, he does give us practical reasons why too. The first reason why it's important for us to gather is that we gather to give. We gather to give. It sounds weird, right? Because many people believe that the church is for them. I think the most common reason why I hear that somebody either stopped going to church or left a certain church is because, well, I wasn't getting anything out of it. To which a proper response is, well, what were you giving? And I'm not talking about financial giving here. That's going to be coming in a couple weeks. 
but I'm talking about the giving of ourselves. And also I want to make a side note that I'm not saying that it's, that it's, that it's never wrong to leave a church because there are absolutely times where that is appropriate and even recommended. What I am saying is that we have a very consumer-centered mindset in the Church of America, and that is not the way that it was designed to be. The thinking that church is for me is true, but, this is very important, that is only a partial truth. Our gatherings are not for us to be entertained by our worship team or by Pastor Oren's preaching. Our gatherings are to lift the name of Jesus high and his body, the church, to be built up. So how can we all be a part of our gatherings? 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10 through 11, it says, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied, varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks an oracle of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and honor and uh, glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. The Apostle Paul wrote, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 12 that the church is a complete body of Christ. There are men, many members, but one body. And he goes on to say in verses 18 through 20, he says, But as it is, God arranged the members of the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As is, there are many parts and yet one body. Each and every one of us who has been saved by the Lord Jesus Christ, has been individually gifted for the purpose of lifting up the body of Christ. Some of the people that I have been blessed the most by in the body of Christ, they never had a pulpit. They never had a microphone. They never had any sort of spotlight it was the anonymous donor to something that the Lord was calling me to do and never sounded a trumpet about it. It was, it was the older man who took me out to breakfast because he had some concern about my walk with Christ. It was people like that. Because if the church only consisted of certain people using their gifts, for example, if the church only consisted of preaching, that is only the mouth of the body. Where would be the hands to do the work? Where would be the arms to comfort the hurting? Where would be the feet to advance the message past the building? So on and so forth. So we gather together to give. And then we also gather to receive. And I, I purposely put this one after giving because we tend to focus more on the one before than this one. However, just as each one of us is called to use our gifts to love, to love and to do good to one another, to admonish the idle, to encourage the faint-hearted, to help the weak, and to be patient with all that 1 Thessalonians 5 instructs us to do, so we can expect to receive that as well. And I say this, and I hope that this can be an encouragement to some of you here today, I say this is because in the body of Christ, we have people who are on the other extreme who just give and give and give and give and give, 
never stop to receive, and then they end up getting burnt out or even end up despising something that they once loved. In Luke chapter 10, we're given the story of Mary and Martha. Jesus came into, an, came into a home. Marcia, Martha was rushing around, you know, oh my goodness, the, the dishes aren't clean. Oh my goodness, the, uh, the, the things I'm organizing in the drawer weren't exactly six inches apart. Oh my gosh, Jesus is going to hate me for that. I told, you to, I told you to take your shoes off before you come into the house, all that kind of stuff. But meanwhile, Mary was listening to Jesus. She was sitting at his feet listening to his teaching. And Martha, probably hair frizzled everywhere, is all frantic, probably sweating, says, Jesus, would you tell my sister Mary to come and help me? And he compassionately says, Martha, Martha, you are anxious about many things. Your sister Mary, however, she has chosen the good portion, and it will not be taken from her. So just as on one extreme, the people who come like leeches to the church and just, you know, just kind of suck and suck and suck and suck and suck and give no benefit at all. So there is another extreme too, where some of us give and give and give and give and give and give and then burn ourselves out but never stop and receive. So in the same way that I encourage those who seek only to receive to also give, so I encourage those who only seek to, re- who only seek to give to also stop and receive from others. And lastly, we gather to be equipped. We gather to be equipped. Equipped for what? Matthew chapter 9, verse 36 through 38, Jesus said that, it says that when, he saw the, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to the disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest and send out laborers to send out laborers into his harvest. There is a great need. The amount of the ratio of lost people to saved people is totally unfair. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. And then I told you to keep your thumb in, or any finger you wanted to, in Romans chapter 10. Um, and I want to I finish out in continuing um, where, we, where uh, Pastor Oren left us off last week, uh, talking about praying for the lost and being, a, being aware of the lost in our lives. Chapter 10, verse 14, I'm going to read 14 through 17. It says, how then, talking about the lost people, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. As I mentioned earlier, the early church did a really great job meeting together. And the Lord was growing their meeting together, which was good. But one issue that the early church did have was that they weren't going out and spreading the message past their own circle. 
And what we want to do at Neighborhood Church here is never to become sort of a holy huddle. But rather, our gatherings here are not to sit here and hear points that we all agree with. Our points here are not to be a hoorah or anything like that. Now go be, and mean, go be mean to other people. That's not what we want to be about. Whenever we come here, we do want to receive, we do want to give, but we also want to be equipped because there are many people who need to know the message. And how are they to hear unless someone preaches? How is someone supposed to preach unless they are sent? Newsflash, we are sent by our Lord Jesus Christ. We receive, we, we give, we receive, and we seek to be equipped. So, where does that leave us then? We now know that the church is not a what, the church is a who that consists of me and you. That was an unintentional rhyme, but I am trademarking that Dr. Seuss. The church is not a what, but a who that consists of me and you. That was not supposed to be funny. but So, as the body of Christ, we can confidently remain faithful to what the Lord has calling us to do. And why can we remain confident? Because the gates of hell will not prevail against us. If our God is for us, who can be against us? Answer, no one. We now know that we are commanded to gather as the body of Christ. It's not a suggestion, it's not a preference, but rather we are commanded to. And not just because the Lord said so, but also because we need to encourage one another and be reminded of the urgency that our Lord is returning and there are several lost people who are out in the world, so we must not be passive. And we now know that we gather around the gospel of Jesus Christ, nothing else, and we seek to glorify him and no one else. Any other gathering of people who does not focus on the gospel or lifting high the name of Jesus is not a true church, but, true church, but rather just another aimless gathering. That is why our services consist of what they consist of. And lastly, we now know that we gather to give, to receive, and to be equipped to spread the message to the lost. So, chances are, we are going to face opposition for believing what we believe. And if, you, if we haven't faced opposition for believing what we believe yet, it is coming. So, whether you are the oddball out in your family or whether you hold a minority position in your place of work, or even if you are a student and you don't seem to fit in with everybody else because of what you choose not to participate in, we have our church family to shoulder these burdens of life with and to be reminded that we do not walk alone. As we regularly say here at Neighborhood Church, church is more than a place to attend. It is a family to belong to. Our Lord Jesus is coming back. How will he find neighborhood church? And that is why we gather. Let's pray.
Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that despite many different opinions or many different preferences, we have your truth as revealed by your word to fall back on. Lord, thank you for clearing up in your word for us that we're not really going to church on a weekly basis, but rather we are, as the church, gathering together. Where I pray for um, our gatherings here at Neighborhood Church. Just that we gather, and our gathering is always centered on the gospel of Jesus Christ and nothing else. Lord, that we, we don't seek to glorify ourselves or build a platform that honors us, but rather a platform that honors you. Lord, and I pray that even if a day comes where this city that we're in hates our message, just that we are encouraged that no matter what comes, it will not prevail. That we never compromise on your truth to be popular in any way. Lord, I, 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 pray, I pray for um, th- those of us who come to only receive, Lord, that you would convict their hearts and show them the way that you've gifted them so that they can be a blessing to the body of Christ. And Lord, I, pr- I pray for those who come here and run around like their hair is on fire too and only give and give and give. Or the only way that they cannot burn out is if they stop and receive as well. So I pray that you would put that on their hearts as well. And Lord, I pray that all of us would be equipped, not only on a weekly basis by hearing the preaching of your word, but also in daily time with you as well, that you would equip us and prepare us to go and have wisdom and discernment in dealing with the people that you put in our path. I pray that everybody that we come into contact with, no matter what background they're coming from, that each and every one of us would be able to give a reason for the hope that is within us with gentleness and respect. And I pray that you find neighborhood church to be a truth that a, a church that pleases you. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm-hmm.